Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Shantanu Nandi. Dr. Nandi is the Chief Medical Officer at Accolade. He also serves as a lecturer in health policy at the George Washington Milken Institute for Public Health and as an advisor to the World Bank Group on Digital Health and Innovation. On top of all of that, he found time to write a second book, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It, which was just released this week. So thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to, uh, to chat with your community again. So I, I got to say, there's so many things I feel like we could dive into and, and you could dive into in terms of like what direction we could go with, with the book. What I'd like to start with is what was the impetus for writing the book? Like what inspired you? Yeah. When did you feel that inspiration at one point in the, in the pandemic? <laughs> and then how long between kind of that first inkling of an itch to write it to when you finally kind of sat down to begin writing it? Sure, sure. Happy to start there. Yeah, I, I don't know if inspiration is the right word or frustration maybe is more appropriate, but I certainly never set out to write a book. You know, I think like a lot of us physicians, med students, health professionals, you know, the, the pandemic has given us a lot of pause. You know, I've seen people move to new cities and I've seen people get into advocacy in incredible ways. And I think I'm no different in that regard, which was just looking at my community and my country and the world and seeing it, it you know, completely uh, change. You know, this was in March and I was kind of sitting there and, and really sitting with it and saying, well, what's my role in this? And the way I got started was actually, I kind of asked a really simple question, um, which was back in March, you'll remember, everyone was like testing, 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 where can we get testing? And I kind of asked a really simple question. I said, well, could we test people at home? Could people test themselves? But at that point, drive-through testing, people were, were getting really excited about it. But I started thinking, well, what about people who don't have cars? And even if you have a car, getting tested at a drive-through still takes a nurse or a healthcare professional to stand there. And so I started thinking about that idea and I was talking to a friend of mine who said, why don't you write this up for an op-ed in JAMA? And I said, I've never written an op-ed before, but sure, let's do it. So we did it and it was insane. <laughs> I wrote this because I didn't know what to expect. You know, most papers, who knows? But it suddenly, like, I was in USA Today. I was in Rolling Stone magazine. If you were like, you know, this doctor wants to test people at home. And that was sort of the elation. But the other side of it was then I said, okay, well, now I'm going to make this happen. And I've never done any of this stuff before, but I started calling up the FDA and I talked to Chuck Schumer's office. I was talking to all these people saying, let's get some legislation passed. Let's get some funding. And what was fascinating is so I had this elation of like, wow, people think this is a really good idea. They're paying attention. But then I had this deflation of people saying, yeah, we can't do that. Patients can't test themselves. How do you know they're not going to overtest? How are we going to know the result? All these sorts of questions. And I sat there and I said, okay, well, now what? And I realized that, you know, and I think a lot of doctors have talked about this in medical students is the folks that are making those decisions about what gets approved and what gets funding and what gets scaled don't understand the day-to-day ground level reality, which is that, you know, as medicine, as you remember, like someone just hands you a Q-tip and says, go do a swab, right? Like, but I think other people think it's some sort of magical thing. And so the idea of then sticking in your own nose was very obvious. And so I kind of then decided, I said, look, I have one or two choices in my life. I can either 
keep working on my little small startups and things like that and just keep going. But then I don't have a right to complain when I don't see the changes that I want happen, or I can dedicate some of my time at least to change the national conversation. And so that's what really led to the book. In having that conversation, have you come across other viewpoints that changed your mind about some initial things you were thinking about? So maybe you started here, but maybe now you're over here. And what were the things that people said to you that helped you migrate your own or evolve your own thinking? Oh, massively. You know, I learn every day, every week, because I think the real learning happens when you try things and you see, did you actually solve the problem? Did you actually help patients? And so I mean, I have hundreds of failed experiments under my belt that I'm still learning from. I'll just pick a simple example, which is around mental health. So I've been doing some work on mental health as well at a pretty major scale, like helping large employers and small businesses improve the mental health of their populations. And, you know, as a clinician, I actually started like, oh, we need to get people into therapy and psychiatry and some of them need medications. But really what I've learned is that there's a huge value for, for what's called mental health coaching, which is that with lay people trained with adequate training, you can actually have a significant impact on sort of stress and emotional well-being. And for people that were in therapy, you have a way to step them down. And then the other thing I've been learning is just the work that's required to address people's core sort of needs, which is that maybe sometimes what you need to do to help their mental health is give them more time off, or you need to give them emergency daycare services, or you need to, you know, and so I think I've learned a lot um, because in my job, I get to work with employers all around the country who have a lot of levers they can pull. And so I started with a pretty narrow set of clinical levers. And now my understanding is much more, I think, comprehensive. So that's just one example. I got hundreds. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's awesome. And it's a very clear example. So, you know, things like getting someone daycare obviously changes their entire day, their entire stress level, all those kinds of things. I, I'm curious, let's say someone decides to go out to read the book. I don't expect you to summarize the book for me, but what would you say would be the kinds of like non-intuitive things that you kind of came across and decided to write about that your average reader would say like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I read the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known X, Y, or Z. Like, are there any sort of teasers you can offer in that, in that way? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, so I spent a lot of time really thinking about how do I want to synthesize the core message of the book? And it's very simple. It's healthcare needs to become distributed, digitally enabled, and decentralized. And I think probably the most counterintuitive one, or not counterintuitive, but sort of thought-provoking one is the first one on distributed. So what do I mean by that? It's hard not to pick up the newspaper or go on Twitter or whatever, and not hear people talk about how care got virtualized, right? Um, and people are like, oh, 80% of care was virtual. And then I started saying, well, was it? Because I might have seen my doctor virtually, but then I needed to like take a Q-tip and put it in my nose. Or then I need to go to the pharmacy, pick up a medication and put a pill in my mouth, or I needed to get an x-ray test. And so what I've sort of said, and when I say this, people go, oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) So it's kind of pivoting from this concept of, well, it's virtual to it's distributed. It's the idea of care happening where health happens, right? So it's being distributed more from a sort of the monolithic clinic or hospital into the community, into people's homes, but it has to be in a way that's connected because, you know, even when people come to the home, well, where are they coming from? Well, a lot of times they're coming from a clinic or from a hospital, right? Like the doctors and nurses are coming from clinics and hospitals. So that's just an example, I think of a frame shift. And what I found really powerful as I've talked to people about that is it helps them in their own work because it 
goes away from this sort of more simplistic notion of, well, okay, let's virtualize it or let's do home-based to like, actually this has got to be more comprehensive and more integrated. And it's got to recognize that ultimately what we're trying to do is solve patients' problems. And yeah, a video visit or a phone call can be part of that. But for most people, it isn't the whole thing when you think about the episode of care. It also seems like there's a big distinction between how care happens for someone that's poor versus how care happens for someone that's rich. And those distinctions are going to be massive, right? Like if I'm poor, there's a stronger chance that I'm not able to be at home on a Tuesday afternoon, right? Like I'm much more likely to be working in, in the world uh, and not at home. It's harder for me to have a tablet because tablets cost money. And so how am I going to even be a part of this virtual visit anyway? And so there are things like that that, that strike me as, as kind of being different across economics. Did you find that to be true in your exploration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a large part of what inspired me is, you know, so in my career, you know, trained in East Baltimore, side side of Chicago. Now I work in a safety net clinic in DC. And then, you know, I had a chance to work at the World Bank and I still do. And it's really shaped a lot of my thinking. And it's another reason why I prefer the word distributed, right? Because distributed in Mozambique, where I had a project, meant you had a community health worker who went, you know, household to household because to your point, they don't have internet connectivity and they may not have the literacy and numeracy required to interact digitally, even if they had connectivity, but it's still a distributed model, right? And so I think what I've learned overall is what happens is in healthcare, we know that care is highly local and has to be tailored to our population, but then we don't do that. And then we have this reflex where people say, oh, well, we can't do virtual care because not 100% of people have brand with and not 100% of people want to be seen virtually. And then you're like, yeah, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need another tool in the toolkit for people who are digitally connected and who prefer that, but you still need you know, the clinic to support people that can't. And there's the same thing that happened with at-home testing. People say, oh, well, I know people who have some disability and they won't be able to swab their own nose. Okay, well... For those people, we have drive-throughs, we have clinics, but for people who uh, self-testing makes sense, and you know, again, it's another tool in the toolkit. And so, I don't know. Sometimes we have this reaction where we think it has to work for everybody or it can't work for anyone, when that's really not true. And it really, I think, is a mindset shift, right? I mean, I think to some degree, as healthcare professionals, and I still get a chance to practice every week, I think we have to also acknowledge our role in the healthcare system and in in moving it forward we're heroes or they're heroes, I should say, not me, but, you know, we could have moved to virtual sooner. Part of it was regulation, but part of it was us. We could have been giving our patients blood pressure cuffs to take home with them, but part of it was regulation, but part of it was us. And I think that's part of the, also the, the message of the book and the message I'm, I'm sort of learning as I'm talking to people about it is, you know, there's a lot of pieces of this. And in a way it's actually empowering because you don't have to wait for someone in DC to solve a problem for you necessarily. Although of course that work will be critical to enabling our work. There's so much that we all know because we're in exam rooms every day of stuff that we can do to make care better. And so, you know, that's part of the message too. Your anecdote about the, the nose swab is really good and useful for me because it's very concrete and I'm just thinking out loud here, but there's a hierarchy in medicine Classically, when I was trained, and, and likely when you were trained as well, there was an MD at the top of a totem pole. And then down that totem pole would be, let's say, nursing, and maybe below that, medical students, 
and typically at the at the bottom would be a patient, like you know the the person that almost nobody talks to, in any meaningful way. Yeah. And that has been around for a long time, like hundreds and hundreds of years, where MDs have this huge huge ego and and are constantly reminded of how awesome they are, you know, in a way. And so I just want to juxtapose that against the humility it takes to come up with a better solution for the patient. Like thinking, like, actually, maybe they can do that thing that only I supposedly can do. Do you see meaningful shifts in, in attitudes among specifically MDs and DOs about their role and maybe how that role can be shifted around and, and that it's honestly not a totem pole and that's kind of a ridiculous way of framing it in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly in our generation, I, I think one of the ways I've been talking about the pandemic is I think we all understand it's a once in a century pandemic, right? And tragedy, national, global tragedy. But it's also a once in a century opportunity to reinvent healthcare. Another statement I make, which is a little provocative, is healthcare has changed more in the past 12 months than it has in its entire modern history. And so people think I'm talking about virtual care and home care and all this stuff, but actually it's the cultural shift that I think is, has been profound during these 12 months. And I think certainly on the physician side, um, I think physicians seeing the limitations of clinic-based care, the value of virtual care. I mean, how many doctors thought, well, if I don't examine a patient, that's not good care. Well, how many of us think that now when for two months I had only virtual patients to see in my clinic, right? But it also, there's been a profound change on the patient side, right? Like literally we learned during the pandemic that our health is in our hands literally, right? Whose hand we shake, how we touch our face, our mask. I've seen the change in my patients. I had patients who used to, you know, come to clinic and they didn't know their medications. And, you know, of course there's lots of literacy and other issues, but, you know, I'd be like, come on, please bring your medication. Now I'm seeing my patients much more organized because why? Because for months they couldn't get a hold of me. They had to figure out how to refill their own things. And when I asked me for a test, I said, sorry, we don't have tests. They had to navigate their own way to a test. Now they're having to navigate their own way to a vaccine place. They're learning about, do I want J&J versus Moderna? I mean, how many people knew what manufacturers made their medication? They also are learning about sensitivity and specificity. You've had a year's worth of people reading hundreds, hundreds of articles on healthcare. And I don't just mean people like you and I, I mean, middle-class people. I even mean my safety net patients you know, they have an understanding that no test is perfect. And they're asking a level of questions that they haven't asked before. And I think dot, 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 what is that going to mean for medicine? I think it's actually incredibly exciting because now you can, when you're deciding whether to get a mammogram, you know that it's not hundred percent sensitive. You know what questions to ask. You can decide for yourself, right? You see what I mean? And then the physician understands their role, you know? And so I think some of these cultural changes will be profound. You know, just like we're talking about the long haulers and how that's going to change things for 20 years or the impact on the lack of childhood vaccinations, that's all the negative side. But then the positive side is you're going to have a generation of children, adults who are going to take a very different view of it's not me patient, you do things to me. It's I have agency and I have a hand to play, a major hand to play in my health, in my care. Yeah, I mean, that's a very profound point. And I am just curious to get your thoughts on like what you think the next five years holds for us, if that's the trend. And, and coupling that with an, another quick anecdote, Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, recently met with a handful of folks that were um, on the fence, let's say, about whether or not they wanted the vaccine. He spoke to them for a while. And one of the most convincing things that came out of it 
was when they said, look, I don't want to hear from a politician. I want to hear from my doctor yeah. um, or my healthcare provider about the benefits and risks of the vaccine. What do you think that means for kind of what we should be doing to train up new clinicians that are going in the field, like new nurses, new PAs? Like, what should they be learning about? What skills do they need that maybe 20 years ago wasn't really a focus area? It's a great, great question. Yeah, I mean, I think vaccines is an amazing example because what I've been finding in clinic is that a very brief conversation can get someone from being vaccine hesitant to taking it a minute later, right? We've known this for years, right? Like uh, it always used to just give me profound joy when I'd have a patient who smoked for 20 years, whose partner has been nagging them not to smoke for 20 years, whose carton says, the surgeon general says quit. And then I sit them down and I talk to them and I say, hey, I think you should really quit. And they go, okay. And then they quit, you know, obviously it's not that easy, but so there's something really powerful about that trust that we have and that our ability to then personalize a recommendation and then to support people through a major change. And I think the challenge though we saw during the pandemic is how do you scale that, right? Because healthcare is historically been one-to-one. And I think what's been really interesting with the, the growth of social media and stuff is it's creating an opportunity for physicians to do something to provide that, that kind of trusted guidance on a one-to-many basis. And I talk about that in the book, that's part of the digital enablement. And I think that it's gonna challenge us to think differently, right? So right now what we've done is we've taken a one-to-one visit with you that happens in a clinic, and we've now made a one-to-one visit with you that happens over phone. Well, that's not really a transformation, right? It's still the same care, but I think the next generation of physicians are gonna have to learn uh, and they're gonna lead in figuring out how do we scale the relationships that we have with patients? How do we scale it to a population? And that's gonna be a delivery challenge. How do you do that? Like, is it, you're a physician at a clinic and you're sending emails to all your patients saying, here's a little video of me talking about the, the vaccine, but it's also gonna be a challenge for us as physicians, because we've been trained only in this one-to-one model, right? Like how do we address a room of 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people? And I think it's been amazing to see so many of these people, my peers and your peers step up on social media and on TV. But I think on some level, that's gonna become a fundamental competency, particularly of primary care physicians to step into that sort of population one-to-many role but there's a lot of change that needs to happen to support people to grow into that. That's not how we've been trained. Shantanu, have you seen any schools that do a, a particularly good job of that? Or any, like, forget schools, like even um, residency programs or fellowship programs or any sort of training mechanism that you've stepped back and been like, that's amazing that they're training healthcare providers truly the way that the healthcare providers need to be trained for the next two decades. Yeah, I'm not an expert in medical education. I always say that straight up. And I think my views are probably a little bit controversial, which is, I think that a lot of the views on training I see is, hey, let's add another preclinical year module, or let's pull people out of the wards for two weeks and have them do a trainer. And again, I'm not an expert in this stuff at all, but at least the way that I learned most medicine was see one, do one, teach one, right? And so I think that that's really the shift that needs to happen. But then to enable that, what happens is we all train it, and I'm going to probably get in trouble here, but we all train at places that actually provide not great care. They do great research. They have amazing individual clinicians and amazing nurses, but I don't think the care delivery experience is the best that 
you know, our US healthcare system has to offer. And so I think the biggest shift is rather than adding more courses and this and that, which, okay, maybe we should do that, is we need to start opening up where we train people, right? So imagine if as part of your two years of clinical training or even your residency training, you left the flagship hospital and you went to Chen Med or you went to Oak Street or I.O. or some of the people that you've had on this show. That to me would be transformative because learning from the best places is what makes you the best because otherwise you're just learning bad habits and then you kind of just recapitulate those bad habits. And I think when it comes to evidence-based decision-making and stuff, academic medical centers are amazing. But when it comes to teaching team-based care or one-to-many care or population health, you can go through as many lectures as you want, but to actually be at Oak Street in their clinics and have it be run that way and looking around saying, oh, wow, that's what I need to emulate. That's the construct. I think people will learn a lot better, faster. And But as doctors, we have this tendency to say, oh, I'm going to do a special fellowship in value-based care, and I'm going to get a degree, and I want to take an online course. And I think those are all great things. And I think you need to have the experience. I think what you're saying is music to my ears, and, and probably music to most people's ears. Depending on, like, I guess, the audience, if you pull patients and said, hey, do you agree with Shantanu's statement that we don't do an amazing job with the patient experience, most patients would say... 100% he's right, right? <laughs> and that's the audience that matters. And so I, I don't think that the relevant audience here would disagree. Probably there is, to your point, a lot of habit that has come into how we train. And it's simply that. I think it's simply habit. And habits persist long after they're overdue and we don't need those habits anymore. Yeah. So um, like that's been my sense on it, which I think is essentially the same as yours. So I guess what I'd like to hear then is what is your advice? So let's say you're a new med student, new nursing student coming into the field. You hear Shantanu's story. You're like, oh my gosh, like he saw a problem and he became part of the national dialogue about it. That's amazing. How do I do that? Like, how do they get into that position to, to do the things that you've been able to do? I think that people that enter medical school or nursing school, pharmacy school are amazing individuals, like amazing. Right. I mean, I sometimes get a chance to talk, talk to these folks and I was like amazed. And I think the question is not how do I become amazing? It's how do you stay amazing? Right. How do you, uh, Vivek Murthy, actually, the, the Surgeon General gave me this when I was younger. He said, you have to feed your needs because my story is my story. Every med student or nursing professional I talk to has a story. Why they went into medicine, why they did this crazy thing. It's not the money. It's not the money anymore. It's not the nobility. But I think what happens is through the process, and again, this is about habit, is they just start doing what other people are doing. It's like, well, instead of studying for the boards for a month, I'm going to study for three months. And then I'm going to like go to this person's lab, even though I already tried that in, in undergrad, and I don't really think it's what I wanted to do. And I think that the most important thing you can do is really understand what is it that makes you passionate? Because there are going to be lots of those moments through preclinical training and clinical training where like, God, why am I doing this? But if you just have to have a little outlet or create an outlet for yourself to do the things that matters most to you, you know, and whether that's writing, whether that's being a yoga instructor and volunteering in the community, I think that's my biggest advice is you're an amazing individual and you have to feed that little being inside you and continue to create, be creative in that way. And obviously you have to go to the wards, you have to do all that stuff, but you have to define sort of efficient ways to do that. Because if you don't and you keep delaying it and delaying it and delaying it, 
you know, it's like me going back to my 10 year med school reunion and being like, who are these people? <laughs> that's, that's my biggest advice, I guess. It, you know, I don't know if that's helpful, but. I love that. No, that's, that's fantastic. And maybe, maybe we can get your thoughts on what that reunion was like for you. Uh, if and when you went, that would be interesting. Um, <laughs> well, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and, and I can't thank you enough for doing this with us and, and writing the book and being part of that national dialogue. Because I think voices like yours are, are obviously the right voices to be listening to at this time. So thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, no, Vrishen, thank you so much. And I love everything that you guys are doing too. I hope we get a chance to catch up more. And I can tell you that medicine reunion story that <laughs> I'm not going to tell it online, but, um, but yeah, it was great. Thanks for the opportunity and, and good luck everyone to everyone out there listening. I appreciate that. Well, listen, I'm Dr. Rish Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>